How do you successfully create a new B2B market category? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Montecarlo is pioneering a category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Rudergrap, CEO and co-founder of Sendoso, the leading sending platform that's raised over $150 million in funding. Chris, thanks for chatting with me today. You bet, Brett. Excited to be on. I love this topic. Nice. Well, let's dive in. So to kick things off, could you just start with a little bit more about your background and any details you can share for those who aren't familiar with you? Yeah. So I started Sendoso about six years ago. Uh, we're a sending platform that helps other companies send out direct mail, swag, gifts, handwritten notes, you name it, we can help send it out. And before that, I spent about a decade in software sales. So I really felt the pain of just the saturation of email being the sole channel that most salespeople were using. And I found myself writing handwritten notes and sending out gifts manually and decided that there had to be a better solution. So I came up with Sendoso and here we are today. Amazing. I love it. And what is Sendoso's market category? Yeah, so we are the leading sending platform. And can you talk to us about the journey to really get to this point to be able to answer that question and say your category? A lot of the founders I speak to, they don't have a clear answer there. They say, yeah, we're kind of this category. We're kind of that category. We're thinking about it. So what was the journey like to be able to you know, get to this point to say that answer? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think taking back to when we first got started about five and a half years ago, we were we really wanted to you know put a stake in the ground saying that this was something new. But this was also a culmination of old existing categories. So, so what I mean by that is, you know, what we do is, you know, there was a legacy direct mail category. There is a legacy promotional product industry category. And there is a legacy corporate gifting category. And so we didn't want to be pigeonholed into any of those three. We also didn't want to be like the direct mail and gifting and promo product platform because that just sounds convoluted. So we tried to dream up of what's another kind of category term that we could invent and we could, you know, stand behind and start creating thought leadership around. And that category name that we use for the first few years that's probably still out on the internet and some blog posts or webinars was an engagement delivery platform. So let's go back to those early days. So on day one, did you know that Sendosa was going to be a category creation play? We knew that we wanted to differentiate enough from the legacy categories. And so because of that, we said, hey, we don't want to piggyback on one of the old ones. We want to kind of be associated with them in a way, but also come up with our own. So I think by that explanation, yes, we really jumped into how do we create a new term so that we could describe this category of software or service different. 
And what type of process or frameworks were you following to just get clear on the category strategy? As I'm sure you've experienced, you know, there's just not a lot of content out there about this, especially from people who've done it. So what was the process that you were following and, and what did that look like? Yeah. So part of the process was a mixture of one, looking at how other people were, and by people, I mean, how other prospects and customers were talking about us. And so it was kind of a nuance there where some people would call us like, oh, you're like a junk mail platform. And some people would be like, oh, you're gifting or, oh, you help us send stuff. We wanted to see what how they described it in their own words. So there was a bit of customer and prospect interviews. There was also a bit of consideration into the legacy category terms that did have some decent SEO, an SEM potential. And it was a decision that, you know, I think zero people were searching for engagement delivery platform. So we had to focus some of our efforts on using legacy category terms like the best corporate gifting tools or to capture that search demand, but also re-educate the market on why we're not just an old school corporate gifting platform and what makes us unique and different. I think what Chris from Refine Labs calls that is damning the category demand. So you're <laughs> taking the existing demand and then shuttling it over to you know your category that you're trying to create. So sounds like you were doing that exact strategy. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And when you were doing that, were you taking them to like a landing page that was just thought leadership content and educational? Or like, what did those landing pages look like when you were capturing that demand? Yeah. So a lot of it was just product how it works. I think the nuance for us was that it's uh, semi-obvious what we do from like a 30,000 foot view. Like, oh, you send stuff. Cool. Or, oh, you help drive pipeline or you help us book more meetings or you help us close deals. So some of the outcomes were obvious. Some of the nuances of like, oh, you have a software platform that has teams that integrates into our CRM or, oh, you have this marketplace of all the different curated gift options. And it's not just a single type of gift, which for the other categories, if you're a direct mail company, you're like focused on printing postcards. If you're a promotional products company, you focus on you know branded items with logos on it, and that's all you do. Or if you are a corporate gifting company, maybe you have a myriad of wine and chocolates and this. And so we had to merge it all together under one marketplace. Um, and then there's this data and AI layer and the fulfillment. And so long story short, some of the product functionality and product feature sets help kind of drive people to that aha moment, which is how we differentiate from a legacy solution. And that's really what helped them see the light in terms of this new category that they wanted to use and invest in. And early on, were you following kind of like the play bigger playbook of define your POV, do lightning strikes? Were you doing all of those types of things? We attempted to, yes. So we did look at trying to do lightning strikes. We looked at how do we do thought leadership for the beginning? How do we start using that term like crazy? So we tried to do it as much as we could. But again, there were some nuances. And as you alluded to, not a ton of category content out there to follow. Yeah, especially back in like 2016, 2017, there was you know probably nothing, right? It was just Play Bigger. I think Play Bigger came out. Yeah. Year, maybe. Well, we talked to Chris about kind of our category. We had a connection through a VC and so he was semi-helpful in actually shifting uh, some of our mindset too. Interesting. And let's talk a little bit about you know that first decision there for the engagement delivery platform. What yes. do you think you got wrong there? Like, what do you look back on and be like, oh man, I was an idiot for thinking that, or you know, I shouldn't have been thinking this way. Like, what do you think went wrong in that decision? So I think the two things that we were hedging for, one is I was semi-focused on a term that you 
could use that had no previous mental like connotations. And so if you say engagement delivery, you have nothing to connect that to really. You're like, I understand kind of engagement. I understand delivery. I haven't used those two words together. So maybe this is something new. And so we wanted to be new and different. We also, you know, I think I did some readings on like Zora's like subscription economy playbook deck that was around like, you know, five, six years ago. And so I'm like, huh, that's like, you know, different than calling themselves like billing software. That's unique. That's memorable. And so we really were like, well, let's try to be something, you know, different, quirky and memorable. I think that backfired though. And I think that it caused confusion on like, what the heck does engagement delivery even mean? And so we we lost a lot of people kind of deer in the headlights trying to explain it. And it wasn't as obvious and as simple to explain. Yeah, I feel like that happens all the time in marketing, right? Not just in category creation where like you come up with something and like, it sounds cool. Like when I read engagement delivery as a marketer, I'm like, sounds cool to me. Yeah. And actually get to the customer level, it's like, well, what does that actually mean? <laughs> it's just words. So I can, I can see how that happens. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it was just too, too much, too, too confusing for a lot. And it didn't stick. Honestly, I think that's the other thing. I think maybe for other categories, you use some nuanced terms and it just sticks. But that term didn't stick at all. And we had no one else using it. We were like the only ones ever to use that term. We even had some competitors pop up kind of maybe two-ish years in. And now there's, you know, four or five competitors in the space. But when we were using engagement delivery, not even our competitors picked up and started trying to use that term. (laughs) That's probably a sign, right? (laughs) Exactly. And when you made the switch to call it ascending platform, was that hard for you? Because I, I would imagine at some point you have to kind of like surrender the ego a little bit and be like, okay, we were you know wrong about this. And then you have to you know change everything for the the whole company and you know, probably have some discussions internally with everyone to get them on board. Was that a painful call to make and a painful decision to make? Honestly, I think it was kind of the opposite. It was actually kind of fun because it felt like a rebirth of something new and something we could rally behind and, and something we could put some momentum into. So it was kind of like a relaunch in a way. Mm-hmm. I think there was, I mean, for me, I think there was probably pain on some of our marketing team that are like, crap, I got to go like rewrite all these like bylines and this, you know, footers and this and that. I got to go figure out like the 10,000 places that we, you know, wrote these words in. So I think on the back end, there was probably a lot of pain. But for me, as like the chief evangelist of this new category term, I think it was uh, fun to get behind. That's super helpful to hear. A lot of the founders that I've had on, they talk about how they get almost attached to these ideas they push out, especially if they're saying, hey, we're going to create a category. They've described it as, you know, it's a little bit humbling to make these, you know, bold announcements to the market. And then you have to go and retract and be like, okay, we got that wrong, but this one's right for sure. This is the category. So I think it's helpful to kind of see behind the scenes there of, you know, what your thought process was like. Yeah, for sure. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now let's talk a little bit about strategies and tactics. So what are some of the more useful strategies and tactics that you're deploying right now to really evangelize this category? Yeah, so I think there's a combination of, you know, as when we put out uh, press releases and and public-facing kind of like PR awareness, there's as much as we can, we try to mention the category term. 
There's blogging and content written up about this. You know, we put out like a maturity model, which was a helpful way for us to say like how, and I think it was a helpful exercise of just when we think about the category and like the levels of complexity someone could be in if they're early in this category versus maybe they've adopted this category for years and years. We also put out like a buyer's guide. And then furthermore, I think we've talked through like, how do we drive evangelism to like the G2 and trust radiuses of the world? So we've had some conversations there in terms of how do they evolve their category terms? We've also tried to have some conversations with executives at our competitors who are like, how do we band behind a better aligned category term? Because Ultimately, we all want to drive awareness to this newer category, too. And that's, I think, super important to call out. We had Godard on from G2, and he was talking about how that was his number one piece of advice to founders looking to create a category is they need to band together with their competitors, approach G2, and you know, essentially make their case together to say, here's why a new category needs to exist. So I think that sounds nice on paper, but I think for a lot of founders, that's hard. I think a lot of founders like to kind of pretend that competition doesn't exist and that's how they operate. So for you, what's that process been like and what have you done to make yourself okay with, you know, working closely with competitors in that way? Yeah. So I think for me, it was thinking of the bigger picture and that, you know, the largest competitor or what I call alternative is doing nothing or not knowing we exist yet and trying to do this manually or using one of the legacy competitors, like someone in the promotional products industry or a legacy direct mail or a legacy corporate and so like that is the bigger enemy than are these smaller upstarts that popped up that are trying to be a part of this much, you know, more focused category that we're in. And so I think when I thought about it like that, it was easy for me to to talk to these other companies. Now, that being said, years and years of talking, we still haven't really ironed out like a perfect strategy to say like, here is the refined terms we all should be using. It sounds good on paper to do that. It's just a lot harder than, you know, to perfectly agree on a new set of terms. And what's the discipline that you're trying to push here? And, and you have some context there. How I tend to think about categories is you have the platform and then you have the discipline that people are using to execute uh, with that platform. So, for example, application security posture management, Gartner just recognized that. So that's, you know, the platform. And then the discipline is application security. And then people are, you know, educating around application security posture management. So for you, is there a discipline? And like, what is that discipline if there is one? You know, it's a good question. I hadn't thought about it like that before. You know, I think I could get into the weeds around the use cases and why kind of our ICP and personas use our category. But, you know, actually gives me something to ponder and think more about. (laughs) Maybe a little homework for me. Yeah, how I think about it is like, you know, why you need an XYZ strategy. And then you're trying to sell people on, you know, building out this strategy if they don't already have it in place. So that's like my way of thinking and what I picked up from, uh, from a number of these interviews as well. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. What about traditional analyst firms like Gartner and Forrester? Do you view them as mission critical to the category creation efforts? It's really tough. You know, I think they are so focused on these bigger legacy categories that have been around for decades or that are getting billions of dollars of investment that they're slow to go after these new categories. I think that's where like G2 and Trust Radius are the perfect example of what is more of a modern real-time category analyst in a way. I think there's also a a new company called GTM Partners, which is evangelizing kind of the 
new upstarts that are trading categories in the past five years. I tend to think that Forrester and Gardner wait like 10 years before they dip their toe into the water into a new category. I think, you know, it took them that long to look into some of these other recent ones like the sales engagement platforms or the ABM platforms. I think we, we've talked to those analysts and we see that they compare us tangentially to other categories that they highlight in their wave reports or their, you know, their quadrants, but they haven't necessarily come up with a brand new, you know, quadrant for us yet. And I'm sure on your LinkedIn, just like mine and anyone else in in tech and in marketing, it's, you know, full of people talking about category design and, and category creation. Are there any misconceptions that you commonly see about category creation that you just see people tend to get wrong? You know, I think the one thing that I see that people tend to get wrong is the category creation and how it, you know, you overemphasize that the first, call it, you know, one, two, three, four years of of your business. And then it kind of drops off and you just get lost in the millions of other things you're doing to scale. And you don't necessarily maybe think about category evolution and what has changed, what has evolved what is new, whether that's new entrants or entrants that exited, and, and how is category not just about the creation, but the ongoing strategy that, you know, ultimately product marketing, executives, leadership should all think about longer term. And so I do think there's somewhat of a short-sighted thought of like, hey, we created it, now we can go move on to the next thing. And ultimately, it should be something that is thought about indefinitely. Mm, super useful. Is there a founder or leader that you look up to and admire? You see them running the category creation playbook and say, hey, you know, that's someone that I'm inspired by or I can learn from. Does anyone come to mind? You know, I think for me, I look at some some of the founders or some of the leaders that I'm close to in the kind of sales tech, martech space. So I think Don Miller over at Demandbase has done a good job evangelizing account-based marketing really well. And he's from his Marketo days to Engageo days to now at Demandbase. I think he's done an amazing job there. I think Manny over at Outreach has done an incredible job of evangelizing that category. And then I think the team over at Gong has done a great job of evangelizing that category. Now, that being said, it seems like some of those categories are starting to converge, which I think is an interesting topic. We could probably go on that topic for a whole other episode, but it's interesting to see these single categories converge into what I would call like a newish category for, as a way to drive more revenue, you know, 10 years into their business. Yeah, I think Gong in particular is doing that right now, right? What did they start off as? It was conversational intelligence and now it's moved to revenue intelligence. Do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. And I think their nuance now is to focus on both the revenue intelligence side, which also takes into account forecasting. And so I think that we saw that the opposite way coming from like Clary, which started more as forecasting and is now focused on like the full revenue intelligence picture. seems like, you know, the sales loft and outreaches of the world are also kind of in that category in a sense. So the the revenue intelligence category seems like it's broad, but is getting more players coming in so that they can build this consolidated suite of tools versus this point solution, which, you know, I think when you're a, a startup in one, two, three years, you're trying to find product market fit and scale. But when you're 10 years in and, you know, 200 million plus in, in, in ARR revenue, you start to look at what's that next $100 million in revenue going to get you. I think you know, HubSpot was a great example too, which started as this inbound, you know, marketing and this more marketing related product. And they said, hey, what's that next hundred million we need to get? 
they launched that sales CRM product and that really expanded what kind of category they fell into. Mm, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's been fun watching that journey as well, moving from inbound to, I think their CRM. Is that how they would describe their category today? I presume because it's just such a, a bigger category. And, uh, you know, I guess Salesforce, do they still consider themselves in the CRM category? It's hard to say with, you know, buying the collaboration software with Slack or the Tableau's business intelligence or MuleSoft. It's kind of a, you know, they're a conglomerate of categories now. Do you ever think about like, Maybe people use category creation to rise above the noise and win a small market and then leverage that position to really challenge a major market. Like HubSpot comes to mind there where it seems like, you know, they use inbound that worked for them. But in the end, that market just wasn't big enough. And then now they're in this position to really attack CRM and be a viable competitor in CRM. Whereas if they had started with CRM, I don't know if that would have worked. I think if they would have you know, played that card of, hey, we're a better, faster, cheaper CRM, that probably would have been hard to win with. But because they created this category and took that play or you know, went, went down that path, that seemed to work very well for them. Do you have any thoughts there? Does that make sense? I'm just kind of rambling, I think, through that. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that makes a lot of sense. I think carving out a niche, that's something that you can really stand behind and be the leader in that category sets you up for success and also builds a lot of momentum in the early years because you feel like you're in first place. You feel like you're winning the race and you feel like it's a race that you can conceivably win. And I think, you know, maybe uh, for a lot of startups in their first five years, they're a single product company, or maybe they have a handful of features in a platform, let's say, but they're not necessarily like a multi-product company that has, you know, a sizable separation of, of siloed stakeholders. But at a certain revenue threshold, you start looking for what's that next 100 million I'm going to go after. And I think you then have to reevaluate your category strategy and decide to either enter in and try to go after an incumbent in a category or a legacy player, or maybe you continue down the path of reinventing a larger category as you look to the next 100 million. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because so much focus now is around this idea of, you know, you create a category, you're the market king or the category king, and then you win, right? And that's kind of how people think about category creation. But I think it's a very refreshing way to look at it where it's, you know, not just about being the category king of this new category. It's more a tactic and a strategy that you can deploy to rise above the noise and position yourself to really tackle that legacy category. So I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I agree. Now, from your journey, if you, you know, reflect on everything that's happened over the last couple of years, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd have to a B2B founder who's considering creating a category? I would say, first, do your homework, do your research, talk to customers, but I would just run with it. Uh, you can always change a category, I think, but you can't, you know, if you're hung up on it for too long, I think you're going to be stuck. And so I think it's, you know, focus the time on it, but know like what we did is we changed it a couple of years in and we never look back. So. I think that's the the advice I'd say. Be agile, but don't spend too many cycles on it. Yeah, that's super useful. And final question, can you just paint a picture for us for what's next for Sendosa and what the next, let's say, three to five years is going to look like? Yeah, so we uh, have an exciting journey ahead. We think that there's a ton of opportunity to continue to scale the company. There's a lot of new use cases that have emerged for us. Uh, A lot of customers that we're seeing globally that are taking advantage of our solution, a lot of different industries that are taking advantage, and even an exciting use case more on the customer success and kind of post-customer world for us, which is exciting as, you know, I ultimately got started as a, you know, in the sales field and saw this as a sales solution, but we've seen just such an emphasis on, you know, customer 
retention uh, over the last year with uh, all of our customers and, and the industry. And I think there's some exciting updates that'll happen there for us in the years to come. Amazing. Well, we'll have to bring you back on, talk about that when the time's right. So this has been super fun. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on your category and company, where should they go? Yeah, search for me on LinkedIn, add me, follow me, or should be an email. It's chris, K-R-I-S, at sendoso.com. I'm always happy to chat one-on-one, love talking to other founders and entrepreneurs who are solving problems and uh, happy to share my thoughts real-time with them too. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Brett.